Fantasy-animation.org is a website with a difference. It is not-for-profit and it's run entirely by academics and professional animators. And this means that whether you are reading our latest blog or accessing our latest podcast, thanks for downloading by the way, you can be sure that you are getting the most up-to-date and informed commentary on the colliding worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Whether you are a budding animator yourself, a student of fantasy or animation, or just someone who wants to learn more about the history and theory behind these overlapping media, mediums and genres, why not find out more at fantasy-animation.org or subscribe to our various social media threads on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Reddit, at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M, research. While you're at it, subscribe to the podcast, give us a star rating and better yet, a quick written review as well. It all helps to make the visibility of our project even stronger and attract more like-minded people like yourself to our growing network of fans. For now, do enjoy the show. Hello again listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Alex Sargent. And me, Chris Holliday. It's just the two of us this week, Chris. It is, it is. It's been it's been a long time. We always say this. I feel like whenever it's just me and you, we always lament the fact that we haven't, you know, been just We don't have someone while. else to talk to. No, I know. And we have to make <laughs> conversation ourselves. Exactly. Uh, we're still remote, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, if anything, I'm feeling closer to you. Well, well, that's lovely, and we've got a we've got a fun uh, film to talk about this week. We've decided to go back to the oeuvre of Harryhausen. We've done uh, the Val- the Valley of Guanji, and we've done um, uh, Jason and the Argonauts. But today we're talking about the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, not to be confused, of course, with the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad or Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, um, which again is also not to be confused with Rocky Three. Um, this is a film I know. All Too Well. It's a film that features um, in my upcoming book, uh, Encountering the Impossible, the fantastic in Hollywood fantasy cinema, which um, has just come out on hardback, I believe, if you want to purchase it for your university or other means. Um, It's a case study in that book, and I've got lots to say about the film in terms of um, its uh, engagement with notions of fantasy, whether the spectator's fantasies and the film's fantasies match, um, we can talk about the film's uh, racial connotations because there's a lot of bonkers stuff in it. Um, but actually, the reason I picked it for us to discuss is that it's the it's the film in my book where I speak most about the relationship between fantasy and animation in it. So um, uh, basically, if people read that section and are and are listeners of this podcast, they will find uh, key phrases like oil and water and things that would have only come out of our conversations, Chris. So um, I've got loads to talk about. Chris, you're a first-timer to the movie. Uh, what else could could we say about it other than um, all the stuff I've mentioned so far? Well, aside from the fact that, as we discussed previously or just before we, we came on, uh, this is a sergeant special, so I'm very much... <laughs> lo- I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about about the film, of course. I have notes on... I've just written Harryhausen! Exclamation mark. But actually, I think within that, I, I'm very interested in... What I've written here is the kind of emphasis on materiality and the weight mm. of the of the effects. There's a lot of stuff in the film, the representation of sort of um, homunculi, d- demons, the, the materiality, I think, and the weight, um, the fact that characters hit, strike, um, prod, and the, and the sound that those stop-motion effects 
uh, make. Um, and then I've also got actually a little call back to, to one of our previous episodes when we had um, Dr. Francis Pheasant Kelly on where we looked at uh, one of the Harry Potter films, the idea of kind of sentient spaces and the role of the, mm-hmm. the villain played by Tom Baker and the way in which he, he animates and conjures the, the space. And of course, you know, not, notwithstanding um, Harryhausen. So yeah, excited. But as I said, excited to hear um, your take on the, on the film as well. You had me at materiality. Um, no, in all seriousness, I think I think that's great that you've already said that because I know for one, I know for a fact that Chris hasn't actually read um, the stuff I've got to say about the movie, but it's really great that it's starting to chime already with some of the stuff I'm interested in talking about the movie. Um, so, so I guess we'll, we'll we'll kick things off. So, why don't we set the scene? Um, I, I guess I'll justify my choice first. Yeah, in this, yeah. Um, in that I picked The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, which is the middle, if you will, in a nominal trilogy of the three Sinbad movies that um, Harryhausen uh, made. Um, and uh, that might strike uh, people as odd, but I think in many ways there's something really interesting about this movie on two levels. Uh, the first is when it was made, which is 1973. So this is right at the sort of... Um, end of what we might call post-classical Hollywood and just before the dawn of sort of blockbuster Hollywood. So this is, you know, um, a year or so before um, Jaws. This is a couple of years before um, Star Wars. Um, This is before blockbusters really kick into gear. But at the same, and and it's just at the end of the sort of, you know, late 60s crisis of the studios. So in many ways, it's a liminal text in that regard. It's the the middle of a a trilogy of of Harryhausen as Harryhausen's sort of domination over special effects starts to wane. Um, So I think that's interesting to talk about. And I also think it's really interesting to talk about um, the film's sort of typicality as a Harryhausen movie. And what I found interesting about the film when I came to research it is that I read a lot of the reviews for it and uh, at the time. And there's and most of the reviews basically argued the same thing, which is that this film, uh, basically the plot makes absolutely no sense or is just stupid. Um, the characters are uninteresting. There's no engagement with the narrative, but none of that matters because Harryhausen's in control. And what matters is that we get the big monster fights and and it's essentially a sort of begrudging thumbs up to the movie because uh, the plot may be bananas and make no sense but the but at least there's the monsters in it and I thought that would be an interesting thing to try and think through in terms of what does that mean in terms of our engagement with the movie uh, is this a movie in which narrative has no consequence and I would argue perhaps it that's not quite easy enough to say um is it a movie where spectacle can excuse some of the narrative um elements of it and is it a movie and and if the spectacle is worth the price of admissions alone what kind of spectacle are we getting and it's those questions that sort of triggered uh, my interest um in the movie chris did the plot mean anything to you uh would you agree with the reviewers at the time well i i mean i was i'm interested in the fact that Simba. This is not the first Simbad, or as you as you mentioned, but there have been others animated adaptations of Simbad. So one of the first thing I think um, Brad Pitt starred in a, in one uh, kind of the voice of, of Simbad, which perhaps comes with its own problems. But sure. I was wondering whether Simbad as a, perhaps a common ur text, if there is such a thing for for animation, it, what is it about that tale that perhaps lends itself to animated adaptation? Uh, in the case of the plot. I wasn't too familiar with with it. I must I must admit, but I actually found it relatively easy to follow, and also 
we always talk, you know, the, the relationship between narrative and spectacle and, and, and you know, we've, we've talked about this many times and, and scholars will continue to talk about this many times. But I felt that the way in which the special effects and, and, and Harryhausen being credited really early on in the, in the opening credits as creator of special effects, which perhaps chimes with your him saving the film or at least allow us to recuperate the film on the basis of his creative involvement that actually the the way that the narrative organizes the effects the way that the effects are the way that the effects are embedded into the film come from the fact that the the way in which the villainous character Kura mm. he he creates effects from the world around him mm-hmm. gives them a sense of narrative uh, you know embedding that I think helps the, the, the effects and the magic come from the story very much so at the level of mm. narrative. They don't feel like they are extraneous inclusions or sort of criticisms by flash insert where you are, oh, we're now at the effects stage. Of, and there are, of course, there are instances where characters are watching, especially in the, the sort of climactic fight sequences where characters are the surrogate spectators watching yeah. watching the, 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 the effects um, kind of go at it. But actually, up until that point, I, I I was surprised there wasn't more animation and more stop motion effects. It felt quite measured, um, and and they didn't feel like they were detracting from from a narrative, which yes, of course, is a little bit perhaps patchwork in in trying to mm. I- identify some of the characters' motivations. But actually, it, it's relatively easy, I think, to to do a synopsis, and I I really enjoyed it. I didn't think I was going to enjoy it. I must admit, um, entering into the the second of the trilogy. But yeah, mm. found it easy to, to follow it and really actually liked the way that the, the, the effects were embedded into the story. So to give listeners a sense of this, uh, this narrative, it, it's, you know, basically, so Sinbad, uh, and this is true of the mythical figure, the story cycle of which it's based, in which it's this kind of nebulous archetypal hero that moves from adventure from an adventure of his various voyages um, across the sort of the Arabic story uh, cycle that I think traces back to like the 8th or 9th century Iraq or or, or, um, or Persia, the Persian area at, at least. Um, um, basically, you, you meet the hero, he's already a hero. Um, it's, it's a sort of, very, we've got a lot to say about James Bond, I suspect, in this podcast because there's yeah. a lot of Bond bond connections. It's, uh, but um, it's very Bond-esque in that the hero is already sort of pre-establishes this archetypal uh, figure of valor and heroism and and the key thing is physical strength right what makes Sinbad an effective hero throughout this entire movie is largely his 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 physicality his masculinity his ability to pick up objects that are heavier than other characters to um, endure greater physical hardship than other characters um, to be braver to be stronger all on a sort of very physical hand-to-hand realm um, hand-to-hand combat indeed is, is, is sort of the way he wins out in the day and this Sinbad arrives on this sort of strange um, mythical island um, populated by a sort of a king who he befriends and a, a, a wizard kind of a Jafar-esque figure from Disney's Aladdin called Kudra played by uh, Tom Baker so yes we have blackface going on um, uh, and Kulra wants uh, and Sinbad both embark on this kind of uh, competition to travel across the seas to retrieve a kind of magical trinket that will either, if Sinbad gets his hand on it, um, bring glory and peace to um, 
to uh, uh, Lemuria, or if uh, Kura gets his hand on it, um, kind of world domination, evil, uh, brutality, and 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 all that kind of fun stuff ensures. So we have this contest, and it's quite an easy contest between the forces of good, as dictated by. Sinbad, uh, hero, stronger, faster, better, all the Daft Punk adjectives could be used to describe, um, and Kura, who is an aging man, um, could not best Sinbad in a battle in any way, shape, or form, at least in hand-to-hand contact, but his trick up his sleeve is he has the ability to summon magical spells and, and crucially, um, summon this army of, of homunculi, who are kind of like, well, what are, what are they? Kind of like purple batty things that fly around and kind of act as kind of manifestations of his will um, across the world. They can fly and attack Sinbad if they will or spy on Sinbad or basically be Kura in spaces where Kura cannot be. Yes, I've got, I think one of the characters at one point um, describes the first of these sort of dragon-like spies of, of Kura as a watchdog and then later these uh, a kind of living homunculus quote an extension of his eyes and ears and actually that, that allows him to sort of it's interesting in an, in an era or or hopefully at the tail end of an era of remote working um, <laughs> Kura is very much able to control and animate and make sentient the world both the world inhabited by Sinbad from a, from a distance of Kura uh, and Kura can also send these these kind of homunculi to 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 spy and also to pick up to to be basil exposition in the austin powers universe to sort of be able to cobble together what sinbad is doing uh, and obviously they then embark on this sort of relatively parallel journey to collect um i think three different parts mm. of a of a an amulet I amulet yes yeah, yes, yes, yes 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 um so yes and, and, and of course kura's engagement with the world his ability to animate the space is on of itself the site where Harryhausen's effects are sort of found but there are of course many others and, and I, I've tried to, to make a list of the mates, the various screen effects, superimpositions I think force perspectives some really interesting stuff going on um, with practical effects so don't worry everybody it's about animation because um, I, and I think and I think that's the first thing to note is that is that the film relies on this basic kind of... These two characters have two very contrasting relationships to the physical world. We have Sinbad, who's who's sort of... He is is Daniel Craig, James Bond. He will run through that wall. He will climb over that boulder. He will toss that brick at that person's face. He will do whatever it is in the physical world to um, bend, shape, sculpt it to his will, um, or at least to, to sort of serve his heroic pursuit and we have Kulra whose whose power comes not from his ability to kind of um to 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 be good at the laws of the physical realm for want of a better phrase but to but to warp to change to animate to malab to, to bend to stretch um and create new kinds of physicality um uh, in the real world and and you know so therefore Kulra is an animator uh and Sinbad is um I don't know what is he he's um he's uh uh, the voice actor. <laughs> Sa- he's, he, he's the voice actor. Yeah. He's Sam Mendes here, 1917, insisting that uh, we all do it in one take because it looks more authentic. He's Andre Bazan. Sinbad is Andre Bazan, uh, and um, Kura is uh, Sergio Eisenstein. Um, right. Well, I'm just gonna just gonna stop you there. So we're 15 <laughs> we're, f- we're 15 minutes in, and we've had 
uh, Austin Powers, a couple of Bond references, mm-hmm. um, and of course, the, a, a much needed turn to Bazan and, and Russian formalism. Yeah. But yes. uh, in the case of... So, Eisen- sorry, just to, pa- just to pause, because sometimes we don't explain. So Bazan is photo equals the real world, indexicality. A photo is a, fim- uh, uh, a thumbprint of the real world, and you take you take Eisenstein. Well, I was going to take Eisenstein, not necessarily in his his uh, guise as, as filmmaker and writer on the, the power of montage and, and the power of editing and, and kind of the dialectic arrangement between synthesis... Uh, antithe- uh, antithesis or antithesis and then synthesis I was I was kind of thinking more in terms of the plasmatic in the way that you were describing yeah. The, yeah. the animation of the world and uh, yeah what I mean what struck me first of all I think plasmaticness we don't often use or certainly hasn't been used beyond cell animation and has an afterlife in writing on the digital so when Eisenstein talks about plasmaticness and the the flexibility of, of animated bodies in the in the context of Disney's silly symphonies, um, it's something that has been very much connected to the specificity of cell animation. Doesn't really, to my knowledge, doesn't really become a term that moves into the world of, of stop motion. It's not something we we don't often talk about plasmaticness in the case of Wallace and Gromit or or the Quay Brothers or Swankmeyer because his mm. their worlds are relatively fixed because that's how stop motion kind of works it works through a play of objects and 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 the volume of those objects and yet there is something plasmatic in the way that kura's kura's relationship to the world in Mm -hmm. the film and his ability to then animate the world um it's not off well it's not that these creatures are pre-existent creatures um though they are in the case of the homunculus but i think there's one point Kura's spell activates a kind of statue on a boat. Now, is it wood or is it metal? Like, uh, it's, it's very it's, difficult. It's, it it it's looks wood. to be wood. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the ship's wooden carving kind of comes to life. And there's there's a real emphasis on the materiality and the, and the weight of that action. Um, and that comes across in the fight sequences. And I really liked the way that the live action and stop motion footage was, was combined. Because these are objects yeah. that occupy space and volume in the fictional world. And so we are the world is being made sentient and, and being reconjured. And to that extent, one could argue that there is a potentially, you know, I know you have a slight resistance to plasmaticness as do I, the sort of it can be used for anything and therefore means nothing. But in the way that you were just describing stop motion, it it, it made me think that it's, it's interesting we don't really talk about pl- the plasma and, and plasmaticness, flexibility, a way of describing... It's because it comes from cell animation and, and is a, a term of specta- in spectatorship that is used to describe a term in production, i.e. rubber hosing, the, the mm. ability of bodies to be rubber hoses. And we never really talk about it in the relation to stop motion. But as you were talking, it made me think, I wonder if it could find a home in, in that kind of object animation. Well, it might do, but I, it I, it also kind of it's just it's one of a number of words that we could use to kind of prize out this binarism between live action and animation, and and I think the film is is very interested in that binarism, and it's a and it's a binarism that is culturally determined as much as anything else, because you know. Uh, not all live action films uh, preserve reality and not all animation films um, 
transcend reality. But there's a certain, you know, we could use words like metamorphosis, which I think Paul Wells uses in, in his sort of understanding animation. Or we could use, um, you know, uh, all kinds of words, even things like uh, ontology or photography or, or, or authenticity or realism. These words that we kind of um, use, whether we like it or not, we have, a, we have a visual culture that assigns the photograph an element of preserved realism. It captures the pro-filmic event, and we assign animation a quality of, I guess, fantasticalness of 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 changing, altering, making making the, making the event um, something that it or, or bringing into being other kinds of of worlds that that don't exist and were never existing and were never pro-filmic. And I and I'm I'm we're, we're obviously interested in this um, interplay. We've been doing a podcast about it for uh, what nearly eighty episodes now, yeah. but um, but but. Uh, I think this film is very interested in it, which is why I don't know if I agree with the with the reviewers that say that basically the narrative doesn't matter. I think the narrative is incredibly important in mediating these encounters with Harryhausen's special effects because uh, Harryhausen's special effects become, in essence, Kudra's special effects, at least for most of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and I'm and I'm always really interested in why it is that animators and VFX artists always cast themselves as the villains um, because they are right <laughs> yeah. you know um, what why is it that why is it that you know uh, particularly at this point Harryhausen's got creative control over a lot of this he's not the director but he nominally is the director he's, he's the co-producer uh, he has the ability to to not do this but what these films do and this is a, this is represented very nicely in golden voyage of sinbad it is often the animated characters that act of forces of evil in the movie and the celluloid characters the live action characters act of forces for good in the movie um, and i think that's a very interesting thing to point out as to why it achieves that and i've got some i've got some thoughts on why it perhaps does that but i wonder if if that had struck you chris actually like you know if you think about it, whether it's jurassic park or i mean we had um i think i asked him this question on the podcast when we had andrew whitehurst on talk about ex machina but you know whether it's andrew whitehurst ex machina uh jurassic park the the baddies are always the animators they're always the metamorphic amongst us the good guys are the ones that want to live in the world and um and simply uh use it well, my my first thought was, oh, it will be to do with with fantasies of control and knowledge. But then, actually, mm -hmm. in the, again in this film, there is the, uh, the oracle of all knowledge, which is which is a character. So that's the character that's played by Robert Shaw. Is that right? The oracle of all I think knowledge? so. I yeah. think so. So that's the first. That's the first Bond. Well, it's not the, uh, it's not the first. It's, well, I was going to say it's not the first Bond reference, but it's definitely no, no. the second because we've got Carolyn Monroe from the Spy. Who yes. Of course, who plays a sort of harem uh, uh, slave girl in the movie, yeah, which is which um, is give... not problematic at all and absolutely fine. I mean, so. we can definitely get onto that. I, we I think will. we probably sh we we will. But I, you know, as much as there's lots of interesting things in this movie, there's lots of just gender, race. I mean, 1973. This is more 1923. But anyway, we carry on. Well, you know, it's the same year as Live and Let Die, so there's lots of stuff going on there. <laughs> I, yeah. I, yeah. So, so my my initial thought was it's to do with it's to do with fantasies of control, but then the fact that there is this other character, the Oracle of All Knowledge, who is a force for good, suggests that it's about the ethical use of control or the the way that one uses mm. uses their control. Or the, in the case of 
Cora, there's something interesting connecting, weirdly enough, connecting back to Bazan, the idea of petrification. Um, Cora is somebody who wants to stay young because yeah. a sort of subplot is that every time he he raises, you know, it's moving, it's alive. Every yeah. time these characters are, are, are made sentient, he ages. Mm. And helpfully, uh, characters comment on this. You have aged. Just what he wants mm. to hear. But there's... Yeah. there's An- Another trait of the animator. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Every time you commit a project, you've, you've lost a bit more hair and got a few more wrinkles. Um, yeah, yeah, the labour of production. <laughs> uh, and, and it's actually part of the, the sort of climax of the film is... is is the ability of Kura to then be made young by throwing parts of this amulet into the into this um, uh, fountain, fountain of, of youth, of, fountain, yeah, essentially will, yeah. fountain of youth. Um, so I don't know. There's lots of interesting things about his Kura's relationship to to to, to control to, to kind of petrification, um, but I don't know why. Because I was thinking of the Lego Movie and sort of master building and and, and animating mm-hmm. and and creating the world and 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 so forth and I, and I don't know why what is it about elements of control and, and artistry that seem that, to lend themselves to these hyper characterizations or these villainous you know a- animation works very well as an antagonist and I and I don't know why yeah. is it is it just about control and, and the ability to impart force is it a kind of quasi-religious element related to, to <clears throat> sentience and the building of a world I don't know what have you written about Alex in relation? To this? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, my my theory is is basic is some of is that I think what you're, I like what you said that animation works very well as an antagonist. I think it's all about um, particularly in these these mixed media live action animation hybrids. It's all about reinforcing this this binarism, as I say, between one kind of visual culture in which the camera preserves an act of life. And another kind that kind of the the camera creates a new form of life. And, you know, that binarism between live action and animation has always been an artificial one. It's always been a kind of culturally created one. And Paul Ward talks a lot about this in sort of the early history of, of animation billing. And the animation only becomes a sort of category almost as a way to also sell live action as a category. And it's kind of it's, it's the two that feed off one another. And and. And I think this film is ultimately, it's not so much a story, it's not a story of fantasy of control necessarily, it's, it's, it's a fantasy of technology itself. Um, that the film is a, is about, um, or, or allows us into a fantastical space where um, technology has the power to morph, change and alter everyday life. And it basically has two actors to play that role. It, it casts live action in the role of um, a life that's unchangeable, and it casts animation as as a wizard. It casts animation as this force that can make the unrepresentable representable, and can make objects that don't move move. And it becomes a, a story of kind of physical possibility and physical um, achievability, but th- not through a a battle between Sinbad and Kura, between a battle between something we'll call live action and something we'll call animation, and it comes right to that moment you just described with the with the shipmast, in that that is a moment where that is enacted on screen, and that what you get is a is a is a f- film rupturing its own kind of um, gaze, its own 
um, fantasy of what it is to give you an alternative fantasy. It shows us the fantasy of preservation. So we have this shot of, I think his name's Harun, who's a kind of hapless, drunken sailor, if you will, um, who who is kind of stumbling around on deck and he's obviously drunk and he's sort of, uh, and, he, and he leans against this, um, uh, this physical mast, right? Um, and... In that moment, we are very much encouraged to emphasise that this is a, a this is a, this you know we can talk about the, what's going on fictionally and that we have a sailor leaning against a ship mast. What's going on beyond that? Well, what's going on beyond that is that we are watching a pro filmic event in which an actor on set has touched this ship mask, um, and the fantasy we are encouraged to engage with, at least an optical level, is that this camera is providing us with a window to that moment. Yeah, yeah, the camera provides us with a window to um, a moment in time that was once there and is now captured. A moment that existed in the world around us, a one that, that's 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 physical. And though, and that's a fantasy construction. That is a, that is a fantasy of sight that we're creating. Yeah, it's it's not something that's real. It's the camera is not a window. The camera is a camera. The camera is a screen. The camera is um, a, a bunch of pixels up on on the screen. But we create a fantasy out of what that means. We create the fantasy that the camera is our eye, and we create a fantasy. That that R.I. provides us with access to um, the physical world. We are, in essence, Sinbad. We are able to be better in the physical world than ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And then it immediately disrupts that fantasy by having the, um, the mast become animated. And as soon as it does that, it breaks that silent contract with the screen. And it says, this isn't a window. This is a manipulation. This is something that can be anything and everything and does and is not bound by the same physical world. So it goes from being a window to being, say, a looking glass in the kind of um, Alice in Wonder sense of the world. And that's the ultimate thrill of the movie. And it requires... Um, it requires that kind of battle between good and evil for that to happen because... It's only it's only by siding live action with the natural that the animation can be used on the side of the unnatural. Mm. Interesting. I, I I I suppose what you were saying about earlier on about oil and water and a yeah. phrase that we've often talked about in relation to the mixing or the the non mixing or hybridity but not hybridity way that live action and animation footage comes together um, mm-hmm. I think part of the pleasure absolutely right in something like Sinbad is is the audience's guesswork that anything here could become animate um, I get the same sort of pleasure from from kind of the, the, the detail and depth and dimension of, of, of computer animated film worlds where you think everything on here is Look in the background. Things are moving. There's a world here, and that that the illusion is is that you are creating a um, a snapshot of a world that doesn't exist beyond the frame. Cavell says it makes no sense to ask what the, lies beyond the border of a painting, um, but yeah. you can always ask what exists beyond the edge of a of a photo. Um, yeah. And I get the impression with computer animated films, they're kind of playing with those centripetal centrifugal forces that there are things outside that we we could look at uh, any any number of um, kids' bedrooms, but we're going to look at Andy's bedroom because the because yeah. to- the toys in his one are really interesting. Um, mm. But in terms of that relationship, that oil and water, which we sort of coined quote unquote unofficially in, in, on the podcast, I think thinking through stuff like Black Panther. 
when actually I was thinking about the idea of parasite and vampire and vampirism and, okay. and going back to some of the things that you said about Paul Ward's writing on sort of the early animated film bill and, and they mm-hmm. each are in this sort of reciprocal relationship that one, uh, to call something animation, defines it as such but also defines the other thing as well yeah. and allows that to, that process to take place. And then we could, we could, we could, we could you know, get Derrida in at this point and have a lovely post-structural um mess but yeah exactly that kind of you know the dualism is only yeah the meaning is only in the duality it's not in the individuality or whatever so that that leads me to, to sort of think about the idea of the kind of parasite the way in which things rely on other things to to survive sure. and, and and also going back to why animators are villains uh, vampires are often villains vampires yep. s- kind of suck and take life and and mm-hmm. Animation is the illusion of life, but presumably it's also the opposite of that. I choose not to animate you. You remain. You remain dead. You remain. And so it's both the illusion of life, but also the yeah. kind of occlusion of life. Yeah, or the, or the or the undead of life, right? If you want to use the vampire yeah. analogy, yeah. In, the, in the I am an, uh, and the, I always make this bloody point. I know, but like I am animating you, and you are moving, but you're still not alive. Right. Um, or at least not alive in a, in a set. You know, it's not an illusion of life. It's a, um, I, you know, it's a, it's a it's a disbelief of life. It's a uh, an illusion implies that you've fallen for it. Um, yes, it's more it's more delusion than illusion. Yeah, well, it, yes, it, well, it's an illusion in a kind of you know Penn and Teller sense of the word, rather than um, uh, you know uh, something genuinely believed. We are hitting those pop cultural references in this episode. I um, but there is something there's something interesting here about the the role of animation to qualify live action and 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 how that relationship is. We've talked about it as oil and water because no matter how hard they are mixed, they will never mix. They can look like they mix, but they will never mix. Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but the idea of the the parasite is, and and I'm thinking here of something like Venom, where you literally have toxicity or or, or or masculinity made toxic via mm. this symbiote that kind of symbiotic relationship between and they feed off of each other and tom hardy as as um brock and eddie brock and mm. the symbiote is this digital actual digital construction it's kind of playing out ontologically um and the way that mm-hmm. it was produced exactly that push-pull relationship but i wonder whether the idea of vampirism and 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 the symbiote or the the parasite here that they that live action and animation kind of always need to feed off of each other in in all kinds of films but in something like Sinbad where you have have I don't know something around and this is goes back to this question of materiality where the characters seem to be I really I really liked the way that there seemed to be a real um volume and dimension and weightiness to the to the stop motion effects because because they need to be because they come from the world they come from they are conjured from the world which we know is pro filmic and and has volume and then comes into being and characters fight mm. with these characters and they hold the effects in their hand and they strike them with with swords and and other weapons and they clang yeah. off and there's something really material about the effects but i just in the way that the kind of taking paul ward's, ward's ideas around the film bill as mm. an industrial way or an, a, as a as a category categories in exhibition and then applying them to the way in which we actually physically engage with as spectators the interplay between live action and animation and how they kind of need each other you go as michelle pearson says how do you know what an effect is you are often define a special effect by what it's not it's not special um yeah and those kinds of spectatorial games that we play 
seem to be emphasised or being being nuanced in in Sinbad. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I, and I think, um, th- you know, in, in a main way, that's how these things work as fantasy movies, in that they're actually, um, you know, fantasies can fantasy films can encourage kinds of fantasies about lots of different things. You know, we've talked in the past about Mary Poppins, which is a film I argue is a fantasy of identity. It's about different kinds of identity, how we come to form identity, and the the fantastical structures which govern identity. Uh, and we could talk about something like uh, Lord of the Rings, which we could argue to some extent at least is about a fantasy of world building, the fantasy surrounding worlds and how we come to understand worlds through a process of fantasy. Um, and then I would argue this is a movie about the fantasy of cinema um, and the joy, the pleasure, the interrogation, the intellectual and emotional energy bound up in, in watching this movie is an interrogation of the of the object of cinema and and and, you know, uh, to, to, to be a bit indulgent, like I'm. I'm the, the the person I worked through with this is a psychoanalyst named Melanie Klein who does a lot of work on kind of um, fantasy as a as a sort of meaning making device in the human mind and how we come to understand reality in ourselves and and our own kind of relationship to everybody else through a process of fantasy and she argues this concept which I find really helpful at least for unpicking something like Sinbad which is something called the internal object which she argues is a kind of uh, a thing that is exists within the human mind, but is a kind of bridge between the external and external world. And the basic argument is that any object that you have a relationship to, um, any external object you have a relationship to, whether it be conceptual or physical, whether it be um, the human being that is Christopher Holliday or my friend Christopher Holliday, a conceptual or physical object, requires an intermediary internal object of fantasy. So when I think of um, a cup, um, I am not only thinking of um, a physical object of a cup, but every kind of emotional and imagined relationship I've ever had with a cup. And that forges an understanding of what a cup is, what a cup means to me, and how I can uh, understand the cup as not just something kind of like a calculator would or a, or a machine would, but something that feels felt and, and accepted and part of who I am. My understanding of what a cup is is part of who I am. And the same is true of my relationship with you or my relationship with my family or my friends or or a table or anything like that every every specimen on this planet has an internal object that we process as a kind of intermediate and if you'd apply that to something like cinema cinema is an internal object um in that we all have a relationship an imagined relationship to cinema that is unique to every single one of us because it will be built on the films we've seen and um, the ideas and experiences we've had with them. Um, And what this film almost encourages, if we think about the, the, the oil and water thing, it encourages you to pick up the cup of your internal object and stir it rigorously for about 10 minutes because every time it settles on a kind of cinema that you can engage with, it then uses some sort of fantastical set piece to change your mind. You think physical is, is, is you think cinema is physical and transparent and window-like? It isn't. You think cinema is anim, anima, animated and malleable? It isn't. It's, phys, you know, it, it, the film is about its refusal to sort of conform to any one easy definition of an internal object of cinema. Um, And therefore, the pleasure in the movie is that it is about cinema. It's about the fantasies we had about cinema and the impossibility of those fantasies kind of enacted on screen. I suppose my my question is then, is this something that's specific 
to Sinbad as a as a a film in which there are stop motion effects because you said that in in the book uh, forthcoming that or just <laughs> out depending on when this podcast goes out the that this is the the section in the book where you talk most about the fantasy and animation relationship and it seems yeah. it seems like stop motion I know you get you know you get very excited about about Harryhausen and and uh, Guanji and Argonauts. Argonauts was one of the very first episodes that we did. So, is there something specific about stop motion effects? Because, and I, and I tell you, I tell you what, what is making me ask this question is both what you what you said, but a really intriguing moment that perhaps speaks to this parasitic vampiric symbo uh, mm. Arctic relationship is that towards the end, so part of the journey, the, the sort of hero's journey, mm. is that he encounters him and his motley crew. Uh, encounter a series of, of, of animals or series of, of creatures that are controlled by Kura, that are raised into sentience by Kura, that are um, created from the world around Kura remotely. So carving wooden carvings on, on ships suddenly become yeah. sentient forces. Um, the sort of, uh, I think it's the Kali fight sequence towards the end, the sort of six-armed statue animated into life, and we could talk about mm-hmm. othering there as well. Um, but... When Sinbad, towards the end, jumps on the centaur, mm-hmm. I'm pretty certain he becomes a stop-motion effect. There is a bit where the the human character... So there's now not a centaur, a stop-motion centaur, interacting yeah. through back projection or um, Harryhausen's uh, dinorama uh, technique, which was mm-hmm. used to be dynamation for this film, is dinorama. He becomes, ontologically, Sinbad becomes a stop-motion effect. And we are, but we are not supposed as spectators to notice that. We are supposed to preser- preserve the difference at the level of industry and production. That difference isn't there because the character has to be stop motion for the sequence to play out. But there's something mm. super interesting that suddenly Simbad has become a stop motion effect as part okay. of the film. I, yeah, but I would I would throw in. I don't know. I never. I'm always dubious about. Are we supposed to notice? And, and that could like you know. It's like. It's, I don't want to presume that when this film was made, people didn't notice that. Okay, yeah. I, I don't. It doesn't. To me, to me, the best way of trying to answer that question is what what would happen if it didn't matter either way. You know, if, if you some people will notice, some people won't. But the important thing is that the character of Sinbad, the character we have come to know, the fantasy, the fantasy, is, sti- is yeah, is is still there on screen. Yes. Yeah. Is still is still represented on screen. Whether we are whether we acknowledge that they are now stop motion, whether we notice that or not, what matters is that the character is still there on screen, and the character is as much a manipulation now as a stop motion character as he was two minutes ago as a live action character. Yep. Because yep. there is no pro filmic Sinbad. Well, there's a pro filmic performance. Um, well, if you want to call it a performance, uh, oh. there's a pro. There's a pro filmic. Um, performance of an actor giving labour, and you know I wouldn't want to discredit that uh, on screen. Whether it works for me as a, an object of charisma is another thing, but um, uh, on screen, but that isn't Sinbad. Uh, that requires an investment in fantasy, and the film is forever doing this. There's even a battle at the end of the movie where we get the forces of good like represented by a centaur battle the forces of evil represented by this griffin figure and and it's basically kura the final battle between kura and simbad isn't between kurad and simbad yes of yet at the same time because it's between these two monsters fighting on screen who 
Yet it is, of course, between Sinbad and Kura at the same time. Um, and once again, the film is constantly asking us to kind of accept that these these binarisms aren't important to understanding the movie, to understanding our relation. And when I say the word cinema, that's live action and animation. They are both types of cinema. They're just different ways of articulating the wider object of cinema's ability to affect us. We mm. have a, a name that we give to terms like live action that articulates certain kinds of pleasures and modes of address and, and modes of positioning or whatever else you want to call it. A, a certain kind of relationship to the moving image. And we have animation to describe another kind. And those are internal objects that we as spectators must constantly process. And it's because we live in a culture which demands that we have the two names that requires us to have these two internal objects you know and what live action means to me will be slightly different to you will be slightly different to someone else um, and what animation means to me will be slightly different to you and someone else but the film constantly sets up the binarism only to only to remove it it, it, it constantly lets the oil and water settle only to then stir it up again yeah that's that's really interesting the the the, the stop motion we are we are invited to read that actually as not stop motion or or it matters that, that we that we don't see Sinbad momentarily as a stop motion figure. The point is, is that he is an, as much an artificial construction or created as, as the human actor's performance, as you said, I think two, two minutes ago, you know, that they are, they're yeah. equally, they are equally scare quote Sinbad kind of thing. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Well, they're both, they're both, I mean, and I guess this is where the stop motion comes in. They're both physical. They're both physical pro. If you really want to be pedantic about it, they're both pro filmic. They've both existed in the real world. They've both been manipulated by artists to fulfil a creative vision. Why is one version of Sinbad less authentic than another version? I don't think the film encourages... Even even if we notice that it's stop motion, I don't think it encourages us to think that that isn't Sinbad on screen. Hmm. So I, I suppose it reminded me of a couple of things. One, similar debates, I guess, around the idea of off-screen space that we never should discount off-screen space because if we think of off-screen space as unreal and not there, mm -hmm. that... It suggests well, well, or if we if we emphasise too much what we see, that implies us or that compels us to think about the off-screen as as irrelevant. So, ideas of rear window, the film rear window, that sure. we that we never really see what exists outside outside of the world beyond the courtyard, but we're never led to believe that it doesn't matter or that it's less more or less realistic than the stuff that we see. Um, but also reminded me of an article by Andrew Darley called Bones of Contention, which is exactly these kinds of debates, how animation studies has lapsed into things like medium specificity, essentialism mm. and superiority. Um, and says, and kind of questions the idea that animation permits a far greater degree of imaginative potential. He says, you know, there are plenty of animated films that aren't imaginative at all. And there mm -hmm. are plenty of live action films that really are. And so actually mm -hmm. animation is, a, is this sort of super medium doesn't really yeah. get us any far. And, and, and potentially in animation studies and it makes perfect sense because it's perhaps coming from the in out is that there's been a real emphasis on what animation can do as this creative medium that other things cannot do and that doesn't that doesn't really get us very far because perhaps scholars have underscored too heavily that distinction between live action and animation that animation yes okay it can do things that live action cannot um, but live action can also do loads and loads of things that animation can't and and they are no more or no less constructed than each other as you said they both fall under the the, the heading of, of cinema um, mm. and in the case of stop motion doubly so precisely for the reasons that you said that these were pro-filmic models that were filmed and superimposed and combined together so 
one isn't more or less well well more one isn't more or less fantastical than the other um they are charged at the level of narrative rather than ontology yeah and, and you know it, it, you know you can what we do, i mean I, I everything you said is correct and and ontologically that is completely true um culturally socially it isn't quite so true is it we use animation and live action to to help us articulate different aspects of what the moving image can do um and 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 that's important to you know it doesn't necessarily mean we're bound for that forever but it's important to acknowledge that these films don't operate in a kind of theoretical vacuum they they operate as part of a of a of a culture mm. um but you're quite, but what we do as that culture is that for some reason by creating these two internal objects of live action and animation we we create this idea that when animation comes on screen in the form of say Harryhausen's monsters some sort of um well something something is intruding you know or or the the film is being uh poisoned or you know as you say like there's a vampiric there's a sense that one object is intruding into another the drop of oil is going oh, into just the water say, i can't drink you this know. water anymore but, it's but got we oil don't in think it. that we don't think that about a matte painting or we don't think that about a piece of chiaroscuro lighting or we don't think that about um a, a slide transition in an edit now there's lots of things that aren't pro filmic in a live action movie that aren't in the physical world um, Metz talks about them all the time, you know, in his kind of theorization, trousages, he calls them, which kind of mean special effects, but actually mean like anything on screen that isn't perceptually, um, perceptually realistic. Yeah. And a, and, a, and a swipe edit is not perceptually realistic. A map, you know, all these things, you know, you could, if you really want to go and go the, down this angle, there, there aren't two alternate. There aren't two. There isn't oil and water. Uh, it just, it just feels like that because of the culture we live in. Mm-hmm. So, so I suppose to follow the Mets, um, and as I said, we are, we are hitting the names this week. Uh, mm. The Mets, the idea of the impression of reality, and and for me, yeah. I think part of what I liked about about Sinbad was that the stop motion effects were part of the film's impression of reality that these that these things were happening and that they were being given equal weight and maybe that's what i mean about the materiality yeah what i liked about it was that it didn't seem to designate the idea of being special or excessive or something to the effects that these were not qualities that were, were attributed to the effects they were mythical creatures and they were fantastical yeah. creatures in lots of senses but they felt very much part of the film's overall impression of reality part of the yeah. the way that this is a, a particular kind of story um, about a journey and it's about magic and it's about um, the fantasy of eternal youth and it's about an encounter with creatures and it, it's about the control of and creation of homunculi and but all of that, the stop motion effects didn't seem to derail that narrative. And why? And why would they? Um, yeah. They they felt part of the film's construction of a of a kind of fictional reality, and and were just one of many effects that were being used to tell that particular story, without us having to always suggest that that yeah. was a moment of spectacle or rupture. I mean, there there is a there is a distinction in that the, the characters are reacting as if these are 
intrusions. Yeah. And and there, and there are moments where the film goes, okay, now it's intru- it, we are intruding into that. You know, as I say, the, the the key one is that moment where the figurehead comes to life, having having established with the camera, you know, taking care to establish this figurehead as as a pro filmic set. It then it then turns into the monster and that's part of the special effects but like, i guess you could you could give that scene kind of the cell of, the, the, of that scene to like a, a um almost as part of like a children's creativity workshop and sort of say color in the bits that are animation but don't color in the bits that are live action and you could probably do it you could you know that bit of the frame is is animation that bit's live action and but 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 my question would be is that how it's working as a spectator you're watching it and going well obviously two-thirds of the screen feel mm. real but that third of the screen feels fantastic, uh, and as and it doesn't quite work like that. What it what it does is I I actually would go the other way. I don't think what then happens is that therefore the animation becomes normalised. I think the opposite happens. The live action becomes animated, or the or the live action becomes fantastical because it reminds you that there was nothing. There was no. Don't worry, everyone. There was no reality on screen anyway. Mm. Like. None of this, none of this, had physical reality. None of this had anything. Um, it, it just looked like it. So, so there's, there's, <laughs> the, well, and again, we're back to this side of the kind of parasite or the side of the vampire that there is, the animation's presence yeah. in in Simbad, um, inc- augments rather than mm-hmm. alleviates the qualities of live action it brings it up to the you know there isn't a level but brings it up to the level of animation and, and invites us to read it all at the level of the animation rather than pull the animation down and try and read it at the level of live action that there is a sort of animation mm. has the ability to to make fantastic live action well yeah and then i guess we could throw in to, to sort of you know complete the sentence we could throw in the fact that these films are received within a certain culture of special effects that Michelle yes. Pearson writes about, which are so invested in the material reality of the labour and the construction and the reality behind the animation that that it's it's almost the it's exactly as it, it brings animation up to the level of live action. It brings live action up to the level of animation and it makes the whole internal object of cinema feel boundless in its possibilities. And that's the pleasure of it. You know, it's the pleasure is it, the special effects pleasure is that they remind us that cinema is a far less contained object than um, our association, our, our, our desire to cinem- to make cinema a synopsis of photography. Sorry, make cinema a synonym of photography allows it for. Yeah. I'm just trying to think whether this is also a function of the film genre. You know, that this is a fantasy mm. kind of swashbuckling film. Sure. And, and comes before, as you say, a few years before Star Wars and then the sort of cycle of 1980s kind of plastic reality, your mm-hmm. Robocops, your, you know, the Terminators, the, all that sort of stuff, which are, I know that there have been distinctions around science fiction and fantasy and space fantasy and all this sort of stuff, but it seemed to me that this this film is inviting us to understand and appreciate how its effects are being used in a very different way to the futurism of science fiction and the role that technology yeah. plays um because te- because you mentioned technology earlier but you know this isn't a this isn't a technological 
world. There aren't there yeah. aren't technologies within the world of the film. There are technologies used to to kind of build it, and there are there are many. You know, the the beyond the stony, weighty quality of the of the Harryhausen models. Um, you have some incredible. You have a brilliant point of view shot, the centaur's point of view shot when yeah. the centaur is attacking. Um, uh, I was going to call her Naomi after her character in Spy Love. But, um, <laughs> is it Mar Marglana or Margiana? Margiana. Margiana. Yeah, Margiana. Um, a brilliant point of view shot of of the centaur when it's sort of attacking her, uh, and then yeah, you get some sort of, especially towards the end beyond the battle between the griffin and the, and the centaur, you get some kind of invisibility effects as, as Kura becomes invisible. Uh, and yeah, some kind of superimpositions and some clear perspectival shifts in the way that, that Mate paintings are, um, are used, but that's a very different register to, to what would cut, what, how technology and how special effects yeah. would be used. Um, and this seems, I these kinds of Harryhausen films seem interesting spaces to start thinking about the these sorts of relationships so so thank you for reminding me of that shot because that's another example of what I'm, so exactly like we have a live action point of view shot of an animated character yeah uh we in, embody its space we we look out onto a space that it doesn't it, and that another example of the collapse of meaning if one starts to really pick apart the kind of worlds of fictionality or the objects of fictionality going on in the movie yeah we, I mean, we haven't got long left and, and we were going to... No, and we haven't tackled gender, race or no, all the other no, no. problematics so of the things. That was my, my next... I mean, we could make lots and lots of references and connections to to, to Orientalism and the, the connection yes. between the exotic the and the erotic in Orientalist um, discourses beyond the casting practices of the, of the film. And as you say, uh, the performance of racialized bodies by white performers so we have tom baker uh, and also mm -hmm. martin shaw um who i think was just about to start i want to say the professionals i always get confused between the professionals and the persuaders but judge don deed as he now is uh martin shaw performing as a sort of um i can't remember his i can't remember the character's name actually but um there's some interesting stuff yet yeah, around around racialized performance uh, and that extends i think to but of course to to, to carolyn monroe's performance who, as a self-proclaimed slave and actually mm -hmm. part of the qualities of sinbad's heroism is his <laughs> there's a bit where he says you know you're you're not my slave um you know that but make me a drink please um, mm. Just a really strange sort of, you know, part of his heroism, I think, is mapped onto his his failure to engage in proper slave owner slave behaviour, um, and the fact that she's a, a sort of hypersexualized female. But I, I had a question about the the othering of the monsters, and especially the mm. centaur. Um, that there is something potentially problematic in the design of the characters. Um, that I don't know that that there was a sense that they were being they were being othered beyond the live action characters and i don't quite know what i mean by that but i think it mm. it sort of struck me the way that that, that certainly the the centaur um and his connections to the the orient within these discourses mm. of orientalism and the threat and the 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 kind of sexualized threat of the centaur gave that point of view shot a different meaning um, within writing on Orientalism and, and, as I said, that relationship between the the, the erotic and exotic other uh, and the, the sort of the masculine threat of those sorts of spaces, as, as Said yeah. writes about, um, 
in relation to to femininity and it just it just struck me that there was something interesting going on within that point of view shot of the of the centaur that when read through orientalist um spectacles might yeah. might offer something else with regards to the way that villainy is constructed and also the role of race within the film to kind of racially ascribe stop motion objects um that was my thought yeah well well I, I, and and i you know i i i agree and i and i i touch vaguely on this in the book but it's a it's a kind of i haven't got time kind of gesture in that like you know the film the film the film is um the film is racist the film is xenophobic it is sexist um and and more so than it, it than even to say that it's a product of its time it's not even a product of of the complexity of race relations of 1973 where you know yeah, we're going exactly. through second wave feminism uh we've just had the civil rights movement like it's 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 to, to say that oh it's a product of its time is not even to excuse the movie because it's not even a product of its time um it's 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 in many ways what it does i think is by telling a simple story it also tells a racist story and it simplifies everything it simplifies yeah. you know it it, it simplifies its characters down to archetypes, and it's and it and it simplifies its races down to stereotypes and and pernicious and abhorrent stereotypes of that. Um, I I the, my tone of voice just there's a butt coming and there isn't there's a there's a where do we go there's a question which is where do we go next from that statement in the um I'm sort of it's difficult isn't it in the in the films like this where do you where do you direct your energy because you know. I, I, I don't, any academics listening to this, I don't know if we need to write an essay about how racist this movie is because it, cause it just demonstrably is. It would be like writing an essay on, on, how, on how Frozen makes gestures towards feminist culture. Like, of course it does. Like, you know, it. of course, well, I've seen it. I mean, that doesn't make it a success for doing it or it doesn't make a failure for doing it, but, but of course it does. So, so my, I'm always looking for the yes and so what kind yeah. of, um bit of that of that question yeah so it's it's a generic it's a generic portrayal of the orient in ways that a discussion of which wouldn't necessarily advance the debate around other than saying that sentence yeah other than other than saying which that is an, which is an important sentence to say you yeah, know but, but you, know. you want the you want the and so what does this mean in a and i, and I suppose it's it's the the, the question of uh, you know the question of guilty pleasures it's not mm -hmm. what's more interesting than what is your guilty pleasure is the question of why are guilty pleasures a construction around which we like there are bigger questions that one can use so in your, i think when you were describing when you were describing the film um and it's it's relationship to to kind of race it's the, what, what what would that mean for a what would that mean for a spectator the film leans on a particular um set of codes and conventions that are incredibly um problematic but more interesting well, yeah. is, the, is the question of, of, as you said, you know, an easy way to describe it is to to say it's a product of its time. But and a more interesting question is, let's do an analysis of the time and to think about how, yeah, the film in relation to that that set of circumstances. But we've done we've done a lot with regards to kind of impressions of reality, Orientalism, Arabian Nights fantasy, um, mm -hmm. vampirism, the parasitic Melanie Klein's work on on fantasy as a, as a meaning-making device. We've, 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 we've got a lot, so we should probably start talking about the, na the plot of the film, I'd have thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it begins... Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, to finish it off. So, uh, Carolyn Munro is in the film. She's Naomi from... We said we'd do Bond references, but there's, oh, we yeah. only did one of them in the end. Carolyn Munro is Naomi in A Spy Who Loved Me, and you said there's a third Bond. Robert Shaw... AKA Red Grant is the Oracle in the movie. And what else was it? 
yeah, so there's, a, there's an actor called uh, Robert Wrighty who um, was an English actor, voice actor, um, and voiced a lot of characters within, within Bond cinema. And, and I think he voices um, one of the... If I just pull up the... Just edit this bit out while I find the name. It's not going to be there. Great. Um, and he also voices one of the... I mean, he voices Tiger Tanaka in Union of Twice. He's in the Italian job. He also is a voice in Honor Majesty's Secret Service as well um, and Doctor No, so it's a, it's a who's who of, of Bond films. But he is also um, uh, part of the, the voice cast of, of this film as well. So there are three Bond mm. references within the film. So it's a Bond extravaganza. It's so both a, Sar- a Sergeant Special <laughs> and a Bond extravaganza. There you go. Bazan, Cavell, James Bond. I haven't done a Wizard of Oz reference even. No. Um, Is there one? I have, absolutely no, I, I have absolutely no knowledge if there's a Wizard of Oz reference in this movie. Let us know if there is. Uh, but I'll just say it. There you are. Wizard of Oz. I've referenced it. Uh, right. I think that's probably us done now. We're uh, we're we're, uh, we're we're risk of um, of capsizing. To yeah, we've... use the nautical analogy. Exactly, but um, mm-hmm. I mean, if 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 listeners are, I, I guess, interested in this is relationship between animation, fantasy, and race, the work of Harryhausen, um, and also particularly, I think these. I know a number of scholars working within visual effects and, and actually material stop motion visual effects, uh, where this kind of work sits. Because I think Alex suggested to it this sort of liminal. We are we are at the end of one era and the beginning of a sort of explosion of certain kinds of effects. Rick Baker onwards. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, drop us a line if 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 you're interested in this sort of liminal liminal work and um, yeah, get writing blogs for us. Roll on 2022. Absolutely. And you can do that by contacting us at fancy-animation.org. There's a contact us tab. Have a look at the blog and the podcast there and see what kind of thing you're up against. There's some really great stuff coming out at the moment. Um, Thanks to all our contributors and to our editorial team. Um, You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. There's also an email address, fananimresearch at gmail.com. I always forget to mention that. Uh, My book, Encountering the Impossible, the Fantastic in Hollywood Fantasy Cinema is out now. It's on hardback at the moment and will be unaffordable to individuals. Um, if you have library purchasing um, powers or you want to request it from your local library, please do so. Otherwise, don't worry, it'll be out in paperback. Um, well, it might be out in paperback now if you're listening to this in the future, um, but it won't be if you're listening to it in the past. Uh, and now I've got myself temporarily confused, so it's probably time um, to, to wrap this up. Um, we'll see you uh, on the next episode um, and take care in the meantime. Bye.